You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to episode 122 of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Tony Lopes. On this episode, we sat down with Shindy Chen. Shindy's a published author and the founder and CEO of Scribe. Scribe is a financial content agency for everyone from late-stage fintech startups to the world's largest financial companies. Scribe has a team of seasoned financial writers, strategists, and corporate industry veterans that can help you express who you are, what you do, and why your customers will benefit from working with you. Scribe strives to help you deliver more clear and convincing content to your target audience. Shindy has written three books, The Credit Cleanup Book, Credit Score Hacks, How to Boost Your Credit Score Fast and Keep It Great, and The First Time. Before Scribe, Shindy was the content manager at Betterment and the managing content editor for a financial services company. She also worked in broadcast journalism for CNBC and Bloomberg TV. On this episode, you're going to hear Shindy talk about how to start an organization with a remote first corporate culture. A lot of the automation tools that you can use to make your remote organization more efficient and effective. And Shindy's also going to provide you with some great best practices for improving your content marketing strategy, your email marketing techniques, and how to transition in your career if you need to do that, and how to start over after a career change. Here are the self made strategies of Shindy Shen. I know you support fintech, late stage fintech startups. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything all the way up to large companies. But tell us about what Scribe does, what Scribe provides for those companies. Yeah, certainly. Um, we provide everything in the written word. So that's really our specialty. It's editorial content. Um, so what does that mean? That means all of the words that you might see on a web page. And it also means anything that you might see like in blog format white papers, ebooks, most of the written word. It can also mean, say, copy for like a product launch or um, like a website launch or any of that. But really, our specialty is on uh, editorial financial content. You wrote your first book back in 2014. How did that lead to starting Scribe? Your first book, by the way, was called The Credit Cleanup Book. Uh, We'll post a link to that in the show notes to this episode for anybody who wants to check that out. But how did that lead to starting Scribe? Credit cleanup book was more a result from my first career in financial services. So I had pursued journalism. um, Well, it was more news and editorial journalism in college at UNC. So, but then I somehow landed in a career in financial services. And so then, I, then because from the knowledge that I'd had through that, and um, I just wrote that book, I got a publishing deal. Um, so that was my first book that was published. And it was really just a, a recap of all of my experience as a, as a lending originator for a large bank, because I had spoken to so many people over my career. And, and, you know, so you just hundreds of customers that come to you with the same issues. And so I figured that it was a, it was just um, a book that might be relevant for people who are interested in improving in improving their credit history and improving their credit reports. You know, this was all before say credit karma and credit Sesame got really, really big. Mm -hmm. So um, it was just really like tips and tricks 
and just understanding um, your personal credit, because I do think, I still think that's one of the biggest financial assets that somebody can have to their name. Um, without credit, you really can't do much in our Western American society. So, you know, obviously, once you have a great credit score, there's all sorts of things that people can do nowadays. Um, I don't know if they're great, like tip, but you know, you can, you can do so many things. You can leverage yourself up like debt to, to your eyeballs if you want. But um, so that was the first book. And then after that, I was content manager at Betterment. Um, and so they knew that I'd published a book, um, but being at Betterment as content manager, I was working with the executive team. And I was also the manager for like all of the freelancers there. So editing, doing a little bit of writing, um, managing the whole resource library. And um, I was also getting approached by companies, just really contacts at fairly large firms to pursue some freelance work and helping them do editorial content um, from like a consulting point of view. Oh, yeah. And finally, here we are five and a half years later. Um, Scribe is now a financial content agency that is part of a much bigger PR and media engine as well. So we're, we've now been acquired um, so many years later, and we're essentially the financial content arm of a of an integrated marketing company. That's awesome. I mean, amazing story. Now, just taking a step back, how did you go from being in the finance world to becoming a content manager at another organization? Yeah. Um, so like, oh my gosh, I'm having to go backwards here. But uh, like after lending, I wanted to get my MBA. And that was basically when the financial crisis was happening. So I really had a fantastic lending career, Um, met so many wonderful people. I was working in Metro Atlanta. Um, That was really the height of like the the whole housing um, boom. And then of course, uh, like 2008, 2009 was when things started to slow down. And you know, you had these like subprime lenders that were going bust. And initially my first book proposal actually was about the whole subprime crisis because in the early days of my career, I was helping to originate some of those loans, but people didn't realize that, you know, everything was like passing. You didn't have to like verify income or assets or any of that craziness. And so um, I decided to get my MBA and a requisite to graduate as like with your graduate MBA was to secure um, a graduate internship. And so I took the opportunity to kind of switch careers and I landed an internship at CNBC on Mad Money with Jim Cramer. And I worked on that show for a bit. And then after that, I moved to London and worked on Bloomberg TV on some of the assignments and production desk there on doing um, production work and reporting in the field. And so that, you know, was able, I was really able to marry by then my knowledge of financial services, but then also my love for journalism. Um, So what came back to the US had a job as a marketing manager at a firm that really produced content for financial services professionals. Um, and so then after that job, I was able to have more, um, credibility and experience and then land the content manager role at Betterment, which was really my entree into more of like a, into how startup world works because Betterment was already well along. I mean, I think they were doing their series D by the time I was, I was part of that team. So it was, it was, um, the experience of working for a very late stage startup that was just beginning to get like um, get a corporate feel because, you know, they're regulated. And so you have to 
adhere to all of the structure. And it was beginning to feel like, um, like a start, you know, becoming a big boy kind of thing. And so, and as, as, um, I was leaving, they were really trying to segue their focus toward like more of that affluent, um, investor. So you could see the switch happening right before your eyes. Interesting. I hope that answered your question. It did. It did. Thank you. And so (laughs) talk about the change in your career from going, you know, being in the corporate world and being a part of all of these big organizations, CNBC and and Bloomberg Mm -hmm. TV, notwithstanding, of course, and then deciding to start a company. How did you make that decision and walk us through that transition? What was that transition like? Yeah, I've spoken about this before. I mean, even before I went into news and journalism, I worked at some banks, like some Fortune 5 companies, as well as um, Wells Fargo, formerly Wachovia. So you're talking about very structured uh, organizations with a political hierarchy, very bureaucratic, um, you know, companies. But I didn't think like that experience was for nothing because I, everywhere I've been, I really feel like I'm the sum of my experience. So when you take all of that, and um, I'm lucky that I was able to experience that and be in those types of organizations, because um, it gave me a view into what a very sophisticated organization structure and culture looks like. And so when I was at Betterment, that was very different. Um, I felt like it was, um, you could tell that some of the engineers there, some of the younger employees, this was like their first big boy role or position. Um, straight out of school, maybe. Uh, So it still felt very young. And they were doing all of those things like in, in, say, like a startup culture where you're providing like the free meals, and there's events, and then there's like all of these things to foster community. But like that, that kind of tight knit thing is, is very indicative, like a startup culture rather than say, a very corporate kind of um, environment. So in in doing all that, I, um, I knew, and actually, just to rewind, the company where I had been a content manager doing the financial content for financial services professionals, that was a that was a remote company, and so I was working remotely um, full time, and I just really loved the autonomy of it, and the freedom of it. So I knew that when I started Scribe, I wanted it to be the same way. Um, so Scribe has actually been remote and a fully distributed company since day one. And so. Yeah. We've never had an office. Um, everyone who I work with is, is located all over the world. Um, and I and I feel like that's such an important component to employee happiness, but then also just giving people the autonomy to do their job um, and be happy doing it from wherever they want in the world. I just think that there's no price on that kind of freedom. So yeah, I couldn't yeah, agree uh, with you more. Seriously. Yeah. I, I mean, I, when I, I'm, I'm a lawyer full time. I do the podcast on the side. We have another project that a few colleagues and I have started a startup about a year ago and we've been working towards sort of our launch as well. And mm-hmm. that was a philosophy that I applied when I started my own firm who really goes into law firms these days, seriously. And the amount of overhead that's wasted to begin with. Right. And, and we're seeing right. it now because of the pandemic that's kind of forced everybody into this position. And then Mm -hmm. you have organizations like yours that were savvy enough to say, we have the infrastructure, the technology infrastructure in place. Why not just do this remotely? It leads to more happiness. It reduces overhead for the organization, which could you double dip into something better than your employees being super happy and it's saving your organization some money? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Walk us through how you've 
maintained the or because I think the biggest thing when you talk to someone that's a little bit more conservative, still saying, you know, no, Mm -hmm. we need people in the office so that we can micromanage them. How have you found your employees in terms of accountability and the organization keeping everybody motivated and moving forward while doing so remotely? Hmm. That's like a really tough question with many layers. Um, So to try to unpack that, I guess I'm super grateful to have had that experience at a late stage startup because I think um, had I not done that, I wouldn't have been able to learn tools like Slack or Trello or work so heavily with G Suite mm-hmm. and you know be able to know all of the ins and outs of all of those things. I never would have been able to accomplish everything that I have with Scribe without those kinds of tools. So I think it's um, understanding everything that's available to you, but then you know it's it's also very easy to get distracted by the next shiny tool or like newest software or platform that's out there. So you have to figure out what works best and you can try different tools, but then you have to settle on the ones that work best. So, you know, at Betterment, we uh, had inter-office communication with Slack. A lot of people these days are just now learning um, how to work with Slack and also things like Microsoft Teams and Zoom. Um, These were all tools that we had been introduced to much earlier. And actually with Zoom, it wasn't even um, like a startup environment that introduced me to that. It was my mom who had been um, joining these like Zoom community groups with her Buddhist study and like very early on years ago, even before anybody had really heard of it. So she's talking to people in Canada and overseas and she's like, oh, you need to, um, we use this thing called Zoom. I'm like, What is this? And so she introduced me to that. It's so interesting. Um, so to to address the second part of your question, it's those tools that bring us together as an organization. But then how do I ensure that, you know, my people aren't just out basking in the sun all day and, and um, you know, neglecting their responsibilities and duties? And I think that's part of the autonomy piece that I was talking about. Um, they see the value in their work and they like their work. That's also important. And so they're good at what they do. They're rewarded well for what they do well. Um, And so I think when they are able to have that control over the time that they spend on their work and then um, not be so burned out, but just focus on the work that that they can do in this time that is is important for them, then I think that um, keeps them um, delivering their work on schedule and by deadline. Yeah, and I think you're right about that. It also comes down to open communication, transparency, setting the appropriate expectations, right? I think people are foolish when you're a leader of an organization and you think that it's your employee's job to come in and be motivated every day and you know keep their nose down and just grind it out for you 24-7. That's such a foolish mentality. It's really incumbent on the leadership of the organization to continue to motivate and to create a better environment for their employees. And I think you're right. I think when you provide people with a situation where they could work from wherever they want to in the world, you want to go work on a beach as long as you get your work done. Here's the list of accountabilities and deadlines that we have to meet our goals and objectives. That makes people happier. That makes them want to work harder for you, not the opposite, right? The old school crack the whip, you know, nine to five, you're in this office and you better do what you're supposed to do doesn't work. I I still don't understand why this is so difficult for some people, but it happens. So that's cool, though. So you start Scribe, 
from the very beginning with this idea that you're going to create a remote work environment and lead everybody in this joint direction. How many people were at that early stage of Scribe with you and how did you keep them motivated and focused on the horizon before you were starting to get some metrics and, and some examples to show for success? Um, well, in the first year, it was just me. <laughs> so, I mean, I think as, as many startup founders uh, trying to test whether this is something that they can actually do, um, it was just me. I luckily sure. had some great contacts in Manhattan. Obviously, there's a big fintech and finance scene here. So some of my personal contacts um, were part of really big organizations like well-known brands. And so my first two clients, if you will call them, were um, part entities at Ernst & Young, as well as at um, Goldman Sachs. So to have those two established clientele under your name in the very first year, it's, it was, um, I guess, like a, like a proof of product, and, and, you know, to be able to, to test it, and then know that, okay, there's something about brands wanting high quality financial content, that they can't get anywhere. Um, you know, the market is saturated with like financial bloggers who really don't have any experience, like real world corporate finance experience, but are just interested more in say, you know, being like a financial blogger or talking about saving and budgeting. But there is a niche of financial brands that want people who have the experience, know what they're talking about, might have like a CFP or CPA um, type of rec uh, like certifications. Um, and you know, it's not crappy content. It's actually high quality, um, as compliant as possible. Um, and also almost like publication ready. So all over the years, we've established processes that help us deliver that kind of quality. Yeah, that's awesome. And so what are some of the automation and remote work tools that you've used to help you stay successful? And I know in the first year, obviously, it's you all hands on deck. I also want to get to the transition from, you know, just being a, a one woman show to bringing on your first group of team members. And, and that transition, I think, is really difficult for a lot of entrepreneurs, myself included. It's something we all struggle with when you're the sole individual and you're doing literally everything. You're wearing every hat in the organization and then you bring on your first handful of people. That transition, that information exchange is very difficult for most. So I want to get to that in a second. But what are some of the automation tools that you used early on to help you stay successful in this remote style? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Well, since day one, we have definitely always used Slack. So that's been our uh, primary inter-office collaboration tool. Um, we For social media, we were also using things like Buffer for mm -hmm. scheduling of posts. And so that was kind of an automation tool. Um, for for project management and client deliverables, we were managing using Trello, which we still use to this day. And on Trello, you can basically manage anything. You can project manage a wedding if you want, or you can have very detailed checklists um, so that your clients can see at any point the status of a certain content deliverable. Very cool. So we're, we call ourselves like power users of Trello. And so for anybody who hasn't used that, if you're looking for a tool that can um, really track the various stages of a project, um, then that's a great tool that I can recommend highly. You can even build it out as, as detailed as you need it to. Certainly things like G Suite. I, it seems fairly obvious that we would use things like Google Docs and slides and um, sheets. However, 
to, you know, when we were first, first year at Scribe, for example, 2016, 2017, and I'm dropped in the middle of like an Ernst and Young office or any of these like older type Mm -hmm. of style corporate offices where your clients are using Microsoft Word, Um, nothing against Microsoft, but um, I'm sure you've experienced where before, say like real time uh, document collaboration, you have these, um, I guess people who are not used to working with G Suite, you have people who are stuck on this like Microsoft Office suite of documents and it's just like a version control nightmare. Right. And so I was having to deal with um, these kinds of issues. And so I, I don't even understand how people got anything done in those kinds of <laughs> environments, but so you can only imagine, I feel like G Suite has just introduced a certain level of, um, of like productivity and efficiency uh, with especially what we do at Scribe. We just can't operate without those things. We do come across um, clients, of course, banks or certain institutions that for security reasons, they can't use those kinds of tools. It adds a layer of complexity, but um, we, we manage it. Like we'll, we'll still try to deliver things in Microsoft Word and, um, or whatever tools that they prefer. But it, without those kinds of real-time collaboration, there's just that level of like efficiency and automation that just doesn't, that's just not there. So um, th- those tools, I think, are the ways that we've always operated our business. Slack, G Suite, Trello, those are like the, the three primary ones. Very cool. Yeah. And I, I have not used Trello, but it sounds like it'd be a great fit for a lot of the work that I'm doing with other organizations as well to be able to project manage sort of what the steps are and to keep everything organized. I have been looking for a good tool for that. But for those who haven't used G Suite, what you were what Shindy was talking about there was in particular that we could, for example, if Shindy and I were working on the same Google Doc, we could literally in live time on the internet see each other's cursor on the actual document and edit things and collaborate in live in live time. It works really, really effectively. We have used G Suite in the majority of the organizations that that I'm sort of at the upper echelon of. And it it's very good because you can do that live collaboration. That's really cool. I do have a question though. To what degree do you spend time? Because every time you bring in a new piece of tech, a new piece of software, there's that learning curve. And obviously that has a ripple effect across your entire team. We're actually doing the exact same thing. We're switching from Adobe in terms of, you know, Adobe Premiere Audition, et cetera, for uh, audio and video editing, and we're switching mainly to DaVinci Resolve for a variety of reasons. But there's that little bit of a hurdle of getting the whole team to take a step back and say, hey, we're going to transition to this. We need you to spend the time learning the software, you know, so that you can be up to speed when we have client deliverables. How, how have you found that transition within your organization? And at what point do you say, okay, maybe this isn't the right fit for us? Or you know, how do you implement that is really the question that I'm asking in an effective and efficient way. That's a great question. It reminds me of how like when schools went remote, how they took like two weeks off where students could just like, (laughs) you know, do whatever they want. Meanwhile, the teachers are learning how to use Zoom for two weeks. Um, And I like as far as digital transformation goes, I'm all about being like an early adopter and trying out the newest tech tools. And I definitely have been distracted in the past about like, oh, this software looks so cool. It promises this and that. But 
um, once, like he said, there's a learning curve. And so oftentimes um, we might try it. So in addition to Trello, there's like tools like monday.com, which is a similar one. So, or Asana, that's like another comparable tool. And I'm sure people in your audience have heard of these tools. So Mm -hmm. what makes Trello better than Monday is better than Asana. So um, you try them. There's also that thing called Basecamp, which is also like a similar collaboration thing where you can do a lot of the same things like attach documents. And so there's all this like tool overload, which one is best for you. Um, I think when you test it out, you devote just like a certain amount of time to testing. So maybe like a week where it's just one member of your team. So um, that's a great example would be, for example, I mentioned the social media scheduling platform called Buffer. And that's great if you're trying to line up and queue up a bunch of social media posts that need to go out at a certain point in time. And you can, you can upload the media and prepare it so that you, you don't have to do it like the day of. And it's a very useful tool. However, was it the best tool as we um, started doing different things on social? And mm-hmm. so you d- would delegate one person to try to test it out for like a week, um, really learn the ins and outs. Uh, pros and cons, even maybe compare other tools, because I think uh, when we were trying to move away from Buffer, we were trying some, trying something called Sendable. Mm-hmm. And there's another tool, I can't remember the name of it now, but basically um, the person who's in charge of of using that tool on a daily basis will test it, uh, list out pros and cons, features, benefits, whatever. And if at the end of a certain time frame, uh, it's just not going to, it's not worth the hassle of switching, then we'll just stick with what we've got. And then we'll evaluate the price. Like, why is it more expensive? Is it offering a lot more stuff? So it's just kind of testing. Um, I would ne- never abruptly um, force people to use any tool unless it had a you know really wonderful benefit um, that outweighed whatever current tool we're, we're using. So I think that's a good way to gauge whether or not you should do that to your people. <laughs> um, and I definitely, you know, there's this, like, check this out. This is cool. But we won't make those big decisions like that unless um, there's a really, really good reason. And then obviously if, if it's like easy to use, right? Because user experience is everything. If the tool is not easy to use and it's going to take more time integrating it, then um, it's probably not worth it. I mean, that's kind of a bigger right. problem for all organizations, right? We've written many articles for like, say, technology companies where once you're introducing a new piece of software, you're going to have developers, um, you know, like bitch and moan about why it should be implemented. But it's really about, um, is it going to save money? Or if it's if it's costing more, then do the benefits outweigh the costs? And then how long is it going to take to integrate? And, and you're always going to get those people who are resistant. But ultimately, if the tool is worth it, then we'll we'll figure it out and implement it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think you're right. I think it's it's a matter of I, I like your style with the let's have one or two or maybe even three people try this out, make sure that it's a good fit for the organization, get them to sort of A, B test and tell you what are the pros, what are the cons, should we implement this and then make that decision. I, I like that. I like that in general. I think that's a, a good and effective way. All right, let's take a step back, though, to what you were talking about when you started Scribe, and it was just you for that first year. I think a lot of what some entrepreneurs who are trying to scale a company, and I'm, I'm going through this myself right now with my law firm, 
it's tough when you're the doer, you're the prospector, you're the strategy person, you're the vision person, you're swabbing the deck, you're, you know, you're doing everything in that organization. And you're at that teetering point where you think you could take the next step to bring in a team and start to build it out. How did you make sure that A, you were financially secure enough to make that transition? And B, so we're looking at your profitability as well, but and B, how many people did you bring on initially? And how did you smooth over that transition of information from Shindy's brain to everybody else that scribes, scribes, you know, sort of knowledge base? Yeah, certainly. Um, so it's interesting because um, trying to do everything yourself is, is not a good strategy for anybody because you'll just, you'll get frustrated and then your work quality is going to be impacted. So right. at some point you've got to learn to delegate, but then also there, I think there's a way to delegate well. And um, you learn this as you are say delegating things to virtual assistants. I think um, that's a great test or introduction into how to give good and clear instructions. Um, I used a lot of virtual assistants in my first year when I was just doing scribe on my own, but you know, like, I think this is harder for some people than others because my whole thing is about clarity with content. And so I make sure that whatever copy, like the written word is, is just what I do. However, I find that some people don't have success with virtual assistants because they don't know how to give clear instructions or like, um, they don't, they're not clear about the steps or like the goal or just being very clear about what it is. This is very much also the case when you're working with design or even, you know, like developer, for example, you have, I think a lot of people have in their brain what they want, but they don't know how to communicate or articulate what it is that they want. So that's important um, when you're working or trying to like delegate things to others. So in the first year I was working with a lot of VAs, um, at one point I was like, okay, I'm going to need help. So I actually enlisted um, a former colleague who was working with me at that content company I mentioned. And she was, um, I would say uh, she was doing more editing work at that point when I was working with her. But mm -hmm. from the moment I met her, I was like, I, I just thought here's a very um, like, just, she's smart. She's reliable. She knows, she knows what she's doing. Um, she does great work. So I brought her on, um, in a freelance capacity in the beginning days because she was still working full time at this other company. And so we began working together and have a great report. Even to this day, she's like my number two. So, um, I guess that's like a lesson also for people is to always have like great relationships or be kind to whoever you're working with in a managerial capacity, because you never know when you'll need them again. Um, so she was working with me and we were partnering up and then, you know, I'm sure everybody experiences too this as well, but in the, those first years, you don't have steady business. It's like ebbs and flows. And so you have to manage for those gaps of, of business when, you know, months are slower than others. And so I couldn't hire her full time um, until really we knew that our business was going to be a bit more um, stable until we had obviously more capital to be able to afford that. So she worked um, contractually for a very long time. And I remember um, when I had a conversation with her, when she was like, you know, I want to continue working for you. However, this work is just not consistent enough. And so I need to, uh, and I understood completely where she was coming from. I'm never going to tell somebody to take, you know, to not take another opportunity. But I think, again, going back to, 
What is it about the work that you value? Autonomy, uh, freedom, all of that stuff. She was, you know, courting job offers from, say, other organizations that wanted her to work full time in an office. And I think she was able to outweigh, um, you know, working for me uh, versus those other opportunities because of the, the work. She liked the work. She was good at it. And she also had that freedom, which you can't put a price on. So um, ultimately, she did become my first employee. But um, making the transition I was lucky, you know, it was easy for me because we had worked together before. So we knew each other's work style. Um, and we both are, are very consumer focused. Like we've both worked in client facing roles before. So we understand what customer service is about. I trust her completely with client facing communications, all of that stuff. And then as we've grown, um, it's just, we've always felt, um, very close knit. So we have more people now, but, it still feels very much like a small team. That's awesome. And I love that even though you've expanded pseudo globally, you've been able to maintain that organizational culture. How have you done that so effectively as you've grown Scribe? Um, so this is, this is, I think, something I also forgot to mention earlier, but I think it's about, you know, Transparency, I think that is so key, especially when you are trying to um, maintain a remote, fully distributed organization. Um, it's more important than ever to be like over communicative rather than you know keeping people in the dark. So I always aim for transparency. As soon as I learn about, say, like our numbers or our financials, or if I've met with our CFO or, you know, somebody from like our board gives me information about the business, I share it immediately. And I share it. We have weekly team meetings. Um, with Scribe, we also have a very clear way of work where we have essential only meetings. So we don't meet to have the sake, of, you know, we don't have meetings for the sake of meetings. Like every meeting has a purpose and like a takeaway action. So there have been many times when say, we have a meeting scheduled, but if we're all caught up and um, we all know what we're supposed to be doing, like we'll just cancel the meeting because it's just gonna impinge on, on actual work. So um, <laughs> to get back to the question though, with um, with keeping people informed and motivated and um, aware of, say, delivering quality work, I think it's just always having being more transparent than than as as transparent as you can be about the business, how it's doing, clients, um, and then also just trying to support each other best as possible with, say, like any work deliverables that are due. So it's it's really kind of that twofold. Very cool. Very, very cool. Now, I know you have some some tools, some techniques, some principles to share with our audience today. So we'll go through these together and we'll talk about your strategies for content marketing basics for your website, email marketing strategies, running a fully distributed remote business. We've touched on that a little bit, but sort of your best practices for that. And then how to start over after a career change, which quite frankly, is very, very important in today's economy, because a lot of people have either been furloughed or laid off because of the pandemic and are kind of considering taking that side hustle to the next step. So I'm excited to discuss that with you and to, to hear how you've done that with Scribe. So let's start from the top. What are your best practices for content marketing, the basics that everyone should be doing for their website? Certainly. Um, 
I can't tell you how many times we look at people's websites, like companies' websites, or even when we get inbound leads from prospects or, you know, whatever, well, or even like some of these early stage companies that have yet to really um, get any substantial funding. Um, we'll look at their site and it's amazing how um, after maybe five, 10 minutes, we still don't know what they do. Like we, we don't know what it is that they're selling. We don't know what kind of business it is. And so I just think that that's so important is that very simple and clear what, why, and how messaging, um, it seems very common sense and very simple. However, many people miss this, especially when they're newer, um, you have to have this kind of messaging very clear on your website and very early on. So people are lazy. Um, they're not going to scroll or click on your page any more than they have to. So you have to make it easy for them to learn about what it is that you're offering um, and why they need it in their lives or how it's going to improve their business and then how, how it works. Like how, how is it going to um, substantially improve their business or how did they take the first steps to get started. So, so I think it's those three key points. Those have to be on a website. Um, and I, we've done all sorts of messaging for companies that help them really articulate that. It usually happens after like a big branding session where the, uh, we'll sit with like the content stakeholders or maybe even like a C-suite team, but people just basically, you know, bleed their thoughts on paper and we'll refine it with copy writing. Uh, but those, the, those are the three key messages. And you, it's amazing how much, how often you don't see that. So your customers have to s understand what it is that you do, what service product are you offering, selling, um, why it matters to them, and then how they move forward. What's the next step? How can I um, find out more? Or how does this work? Those are, those are the, the simple messages, I think. For those are the rules of content marketing. Right. And it really comes from storytelling basics for mm -hmm. the most part, right? People should be able to come to your site, for example, and know mm -hmm. rather quickly what's the customer journey going to look like, correct? Absolutely. And, you know, um, I, I understand that many people who are launching, they have to start somewhere. So often it's like the CEO or the founder who's writing that initial copy down and um, launching with, say, like a website in place with with those thoughts. But at a certain point, you have to hire a professional to do it. And we don't expect for founders or anybody in the C-suite to be professional writers and copywriters at that because copywriting is such a specific and unique skill. Um, and so when you see a website where um, they haven't invested resources in that, it's very apparent. Like usually, you know, it's just not very action-based copy or it just isn't very effective. It doesn't really speak to the that what, why, how messaging. And it's, it's just too complicated. Like it's, you know, full of verbiage and just, just, you know, it's, it's just not clear. So I think it's all about clarity as well. Are you, you know, is it, is it clear for the, your website visitor or reader to understand? So um, I think that's, that's crucial. And then all of the other content marketing stuff follows, like, do you build a blog? Do you have email marketing? All of those things. Right. Exactly. All right. So a, uh, uh Speaking of email marketing, what are the best email marketing practices for most people? And this is one that I particularly struggle with as well, because I find it difficult at times. Also, email is a little bit obtrusive, I think, in a lot of people's lives, especially in my own life. I feel like I'm just constantly bombarded 
There was a meme I saw today before we jumped onto this on Instagram that said, stop asking people what they do for a living. We're all just out here answering emails every day, right? That's basically everybody's job. So what, what are your best practices for email marketing? Um, I don't think email is dead. I feel like it's still a very valuable tool and oftentimes the only tool that you have to communicate with your customer. So you have to use that very wisely and, you know, you're taking up your reader's inbox space. So it's very precious real estate and it's up to you to make it as impactful as possible. So there are ways to um, really understand email marketing. I always, I find it funny because people have said before, like, oh, well, email marketing doesn't work for me. Well, it works for some of the biggest brands in the world because they put the money into doing things like segmenting and grouping. Um, they've put money into copywriting. And I think most importantly, they've put um, thought into consistency because I think where it doesn't work is when you're not consistent with it. And that, that is what we help a lot of clients with is with um, creating content so that you can publish it on a regular cadence. I mean, the Scribble newsletter, our own newsletter goes out every Tuesday at 5 p.m. And we've followed that schedule for two years. And so there's nothing that's going to prevent us from publishing something at, on Tuesday at 5 p.m. every week, um, even during holidays or like snowstorms or unless it's like a, you know, God event, right. <laughs> I mean, like uh, uh, we're going to publish something, even if it's like a rerun from, say, like the you know best of scribble, something like that. Um, usually we take a pause like six months into the year and we'll recap like best, most popular scribbles so far. Or, you know, at the, at the end of the year, we always publish something like our year in numbers. But it's all about um, it, having your readers expect that consistency. And when you're consistent, it's a sign of quality. Um, so you, and every, every time we have our newsletter, for example, we just offer something that hopefully can educate and teach people about financial content marketing. So um, email isn't dead. <laughs> I think it's about what you're, how, how you're doing it. Um, you can find a lot of value in making the effort to uh, group your email list, um, treat, you know, certain people who signed up for your list one way, like you're not going to target the same people who signed up for an ebook um, as let's say like your existing customer. So I think it's, very targeted. Once you know your your various email groups, then I think you can tailor messaging that is it is um, hopefully will get more personalized content across to them and that will encourage them to open your email. Yeah, that makes sense. And co consistency is really king at the end of the day with all of this stuff. To your point, you know, if you're going to commit to whatever it is, if you're going to say we're, we're going to release a monthly email newsletter every month on the dot, you've got to release that. And it should be valuable content that's useful to people, not content that's saying, join us or hire us because we're so awesome at pushing paper or whatever it is that you do. It really should be about how can I add value into other people's lives so that they want to open that email and hopefully want to share that content later. Yeah, that's very much like that show and tell um, 
philosophy like you don't want to tell people why you're so wonderful you have to instead flip it and put yourself in their shoes and show them why so is it with case studies is it with numbers um what are the real results um like show them why this particular tool is going to improve their life or um, show them how people are so happy and their lives have been like greatly improved because you know, the every, for example, in Slack, like everybody is, is communicating much quicker and they are able to get done in five minutes, what would normally take like a 10 email thread. So those kinds of benefits are very real and relatable. And if you can, um, you know, relay those kinds of stories and use cases to people, I think that's the strongest thing. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. All right. So we've talked a lot about how you've run Scribe as a fully remote business, but If you had, say, one best practice, or feel free to add to that, with respect to keeping your team motivated while operating remotely, which I think is the biggest struggle, and we've seen that across the board with respect to businesses transitioning into a more remote world. And I hear it from friends all the time, that they're just not motivated. They're Zoomed out. You know, they've had it with these boring Zoom meetings People go on to Zoom and they all they do is they waste a half an hour talking about, you know, how woe is me because of the pandemic. And look, the pandemic's been rough on a lot of people, don't get me wrong. And our mental health is is suffering because of that for for many reasons. But at the same time, that's not helpful and that's not good for an organizational culture and to keep your people motivated. So what what have you done or what are your best practices? to increase motivation while you're operating a remote focused business? Um, Well, one thing that we do that I think many organizations do is this daily check-in concept. Um, You can call it whatever you want to call it. At Betterment, it was called a stand-up. I mean, you're in an office in that environment, but everybody gets together and kind of shares like what their goal is for the day or like the things that they're working on for the day. Um, So we do have a virtual kind of like daily focus stand up meeting, I guess, if you want to call it, where people just outline, um, you know, maybe two to three things. I'm not looking for 20 things. Everybody has 20 things to do per day, but really drill down into what are the top three things that you'd like to focus on finishing or that you are working on for that particular day. So we actually do have a channel that's dedicated to this um, and everybody gets to read everybody else's submissions. Again, it's like that whole transparency thing. There's um, uh, something that I mentioned about like remote work is that you have to, in a way, be over communicative because people can also take advantage of the fact that they're working remotely and then you won't hear from them. And then you're curious about like, <laughs> where is the response to this? Like, are you even there? So this kind of keeps us on track. But the only other team wide meeting that we have is once a week. And so that's like a weekly check in. Um, it's Monday afternoons. And uh, so it's, you know, it gives people time to sort of settle into Monday, but then also just set some goals and very clearly outline these are our deliverables for the week for the client who's working on this. Then we have operational updates from whoever's in charge. And then we also have business development updates. And then we also have internal updates. So it's like, you know, is it a housekeeping issue? Who's out? Who's who's doing what? Um, but, you know, we we aren't always so business focused, like we'll have uh, some time where we banter. But um, I think everybody, the beautiful thing about Scribe is that we know when to segue directly into, you know, shop talk versus 
like you know um, the catch up <laughs> rather stuff. than like did right. you see what's on this yeah, like it, i always found that in an office environment very few very uh, a small portion of the day is actually um, done on productive work uh, the rest of the time people were talking about facebook or what they saw on this or that and it, to me, the office environment was just not never like conducive, especially to scribes work, which is very much editing and writing work. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Awesome. So now the big one, I think, for for what people are going through mainly during the pandemic. What about people who are considering a career change, either because they've been forced into that situation or because they've been side hustling and they think that now is a good time, which by the way, I do think that I think if you've had a side hustle, there's going to be a lot of opportunity over there has been already for the last year, but there will be more going forward as we transition into a new style of societal living. So what are what is your advice to that individual who's considering a big drastic career change, potentially even a start over? What's your advice to that individual? Um, it depends on what stage in life they're at. That's, you know, I think is, is very, very important. Um, obviously when you're younger and, um, you don't have so many, well, I don't want to say that, but some people like to think that if you're younger, then you can take a lot more opportunities or, you know, drop everything and move or work virtually if you want or whatever. But, um, so it really depends on who depends on you. First of all, like, is it, our whole family? Are you looking after people versus is it just you? So um, obviously get real about that. <laughs> and and then financially, you probably have to take an inventory on how comfortable um, you want to be um, with anything that you're trying out, even if it's like a side hustle, I start, I would say start slowly. Um, like I did with before I started scribe, I wanted to make sure that there was like proof of product. Um, so I was doing freelance type work, but just at a very small scale, like helping people edit or helping people write a few blogs here or there, or like with a white paper or, you know, just writing little blurbs on market reports and things like that, but in a freelance capacity and in a way that wouldn't impact on my full-time job, but at least I was able to kind of like test it out first before I went all in and started scribe. Um, so I think start slowly and just get a sense of, um, whether this is something that you could do. And if it's, if you're passionate about it, then make the commitment. Um, and I think once you are all in, then you should probably focus on it 100%. It's just not possible to, to have your one, your brain here. And then half over here, you're only going to get frustrated or burned out. So, um, I think there's something I, I saw before, I think it might've been like a Peter Vu thing where he was like, make the definite decision. And it, once you make that decision, just don't look back. Like if, if that's what you want to do, then do it. And if you fail in the end, that's okay. I mean, you could, you could say that you tried, but it does need your brain's focus, um, so that you are able to really give it your best. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That whole burn the ships mentality so that you kind of, yeah, you cut off that sort of safety net so that you can focus on really trying to drive to the end goal, whatever that is for you, right? Yeah. I would also say too, I think I've given this advice on some, um, like say career type podcasts before, but if you have a trade or something that you know well, then 
that's even more like a chink in your armor because you can always fall back on that. Um, I was lucky because I had a lending career. So I know that if shit hits the fan and I'm left with nothing, at least I can always go back to that industry because I know it front to back and it's something that I, I can do. So if you, if you have something like if you have a first career or, or you learn a trade or um, you're doing something and you just know that you can do it really well, then at least you have the knowledge of, of um, if you fail, then you can always rely on that income or do something different in, in the future. So that gives you a bit more confidence as you're starting out new, right? Um, uh, like it just, it just gives you like a fallback plan in right. case whatever you're pursuing side hustling or whatever doesn't work out. Yeah. I love the way that you put that. And and when you say, you know, if the shit hits the fan, the shit rarely hits the fan, right? You fail. there are micro failures along the way, but in all reality, the sky is most likely not going to fall around you tomorrow, right? You have the opportunity to give something a shot. And if you fail, you pivot or you try to do something else. And the absolute worst case scenario is, you go back to a regular job tomorrow and it's not that bad. You could start over, right? Right. And you know, it's, it's really dependent on what type of person you are because there's, there's, um, I don't diss on a regular job at all. I think, you know, people are, are very different. Like, um, uh, my mom or my parents were very happy with the same type of job that they've had because it's consistent and that kind of leads to happiness and security and people's definition of success is very different. So it's, it's whatever is right for them. Um, but yeah, I do think that if you have something to, if you've got that experience or something else that you've done before you, you go all in on something new, then it, you at least have that confidence. Yeah. Great point. Awesome. Shindy, thanks so much for your time. Where can people go if they want to connect with you or if they want to check out Scribe? Yeah, um, they can go to our website, which is uh, the Scribe. So it's T-H-E-S-C-R-I dot B-E. So that's Scribe's website. If they want to connect with me, then it's just my name on Twitter. So it's Shindy Chen. Um, and then also same on Instagram. Um, and then my personal website is shindychen.com. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we have all of the social channels. So if they want to follow us on our social cool. or scribe social, we get pretty fun and creative. Like that's where we get to have fun. So <laughs> they can follow us there if they'd like. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shindy. This was great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here.